Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a pre-seed venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in product-focused teams on day zero. If you're starting a new company or want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or email us at hello at notation.vc. If you want to work at a Notation portfolio company, check out jobs.notation.vc. The Notation job site is powered by Getro, the job board and talent network platform for the world's top VC funds. More than 300 venture investors use Getro's tools to help their portfolio companies fill open roles faster, monitor hiring activity, and maximize connections across their network. Their software has saved us time and money while helping us add outsized value to our founders. Learn more at Getro.com. This episode is sponsored by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SVB's services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the beginning of Notation. They've helped us form all three Notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at cooleygo.com. Jordan Cooper and Chris Peck are general partners and co-founders of Pace Capital, a newly formed firm focused on Series A investments. They've been building and investing in the New York City ecosystem for the past decade plus. Jordan was previously a co-founder of Lair Hippo Ventures, the largest institutional seed fund in New York City, and also co-founded Hyperpublic, which he sold to Groupon in 2012. Chris co-founded Thrive Capital in the late aughts out of college and helped build Thrive into one of the top institutional multi-stage firms in the U.S. today. I think this is the first externally facing thing that we've done. I'm honored. I mean, it doesn't really? surprise me, but I'm also honored. Jordan, Chris, thank you guys for doing this with me. Chris, you just said this was the first external interview comment about Pace Capital. You guys have both been friends for a long time now. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to do this. Welcome. Thank you for having us. So we usually start with a little bit about yourselves and a little bit about your backgrounds and I guess the very quick overview of what ultimately led you to starting Pace together. Sure. You want to go first, Chris, or you want me to? I'll, I'll, I'll go first. All right, cool. Oh, gosh. Uh, okay, so let's see. I grew up in California. I grew up in the Bay Area, a small town called Burlingame, which is halfway in between San Francisco and Palo Alto. Yeah. Moved east for college, studied economics and psychology at Harvard. I was really interested in behavioral economics. So um, spent a lot of time thinking about rationalizing irrational sort of seemingly irrational behavior when i graduated in 2009 uh i i did not have a job uh i was not as well prepared as many of my other peers uh in terms of full-time roles lined up after school i had worked at a startup my junior summer that by the time i graduated you know wasn't really there Mm -hmm. It was also like post-financial crisis. So I imagine exactly, like, exactly. jobs it was were a, maybe also hard to come by. It was a poor decision to graduate into yeah. a recession. Yeah. 
But I think the silver lining on that, that which I am very grateful of, is I was forced to experiment. I was just forced to take risks, try things, try things that I thought I might be interested in. And through that sort of trial and error, I ended up somersaulting backwards into the tech community in New York. I remember going to a hackers and founders meetup at Shake Shack when there was only one Shake Shack and it was maybe a couple dozen people. And I became just enamored by the ecosystem here. I very naively thought that you know, growing up in Silicon Valley, that if you wanted to do tech, you had to, you know, uproot your life and move to the Bay Area and rent a garage somewhere in Menlo Park. And that was how it was done. But to find a, a sort of ecosystem in New York was amazing. So ended up linking back up with a classmate from undergrad, Josh Kushner. He and I were, he's a year above me in undergrad, but we were in the same sort of social organization. And, you know, he was angel investing at the time, was thinking about formalizing that into a firm. And I asked, I obviously had very little switching cost at the time. And so I asked him if he wanted help. We started working together. This was 2010, uh, beginning 2010. And that was the first instantiation of Thrive Capital. Um, which is where I was for the majority of my career. Uh, five funds. Our first fund was $10 million. Second fund was $40 million, 150, 400, 700. The most recent fund's a billion. But I left because I knew I wanted to start uh, what would you know, ultimately be my and other people's life's work. Um, Jordan was the first person I told when I was leaving Thrive that I was leaving. And we started Pace together, uh, closed our first fund last year. And it's a $150 million fund focused on Series A or early stage. And that's kind of it in a nutshell. Jordan? Awesome. Yeah. So uh, I grew up in New York, uh, went to Dartmouth for college, moved back to New York after school and worked on Wall Street for a little more than a year, primarily focused on leverage finance and leverage buyouts. Pretty quickly realized that that was not for me. I think there were sort of two key insights there. One is, um, you know, our job was to raise debt on top of LBO targets. It was very much like the credit mind that you used every day, which was we just put all of this debt on this company. What could possibly go wrong such that they won't be able to pay it back? And I found myself much more interested in what could go right with companies and like where the upside was and what they could become. And I noticed that people around me just didn't care about that. And so it was that and also spending two or three days out of a month with whatever founder or CEO we were capitalizing. I was like, oh, I'm way more like these people than I am like the people I'm sitting next to every day. Uh, I must be an entrepreneur. But this was 2006. So really different time in tech and venture, especially outside of the, the valley in the sense that it wasn't networked the way that it is now. Like this was before Twitter. There weren't thousands of blog posts that told you how to build companies. And my thinking was, if I can get into the business of investing in early stage companies, I'll like learn the playbook and then I'll go and do it. And so I got a copy of the Midas list and just called, called my way up from the bottom. And through that, ended up going to work at a firm called General Catalyst Partners. At the time, they were just in Boston. So I moved to Boston for two years to work with them. 
Uh, now they're in New York and California and have billions under management, but it was still small at that time, which was really cool. So, you know, a lot of my inputs, both as to how I think about investing, but also building a firm, definitely come from that chapter. Ultimately left and started a few companies. One of those companies was called Hyperpublic. It was a data infrastructure company. I know Chris because Thrive was an investor in my company. This was a decade ago or something like that. We ended up selling that company to Groupon uh, shortly after Groupon went public, uh, which was great. And actually concurrent with starting Hyperpublic, I also teamed up with Ken and Ben Lear to start Lear Ventures. It's now called Lear Hippo. We added a fourth partner in our second fund. It's the largest institutional seed firm in New York, I believe. And I was a GP there for our first four funds. So most of my career, I had two jobs at the same time. I was both actively building stuff as a CEO and also investing at a firm. And Pace was really just about you know, making the long-range commitment to serve founders full-time and wanting to design a platform from the ground up, which was consistent with the way that I wanted to practice my underlying value set, et cetera. I think we did an amazing job at Lear uh, constructing an early stage portfolio. The thing that was always hard for me there was we'd invest in 50 companies per fund and raise a new fund every year and a half. So the portfolio got really big really quickly. And then we invested in platform and infrastructure and services in order to support that. But the net of that was, you know, after I made the investment in a founder who I wanted to work with and think with, a large portion of their surface area with the firm just wasn't me. And so Pace is kind of the inverse of that in the sense that it's fewer, deeper relationships. I'll make two investments this year. Chris will make two investments this year. Every investment is a commitment to serve the founders in the company without any intention of rolling off the board kind of for the entire journey. So, you know, it's a very significant commitment that we're making, but, you know, it's one that optimizes for like super productive, super rewarding, fun working relationships, which is something that uh, we were optimizing for. So, you know, as Chris said, uh, we closed our first fund a little more than a year ago. We only do one thing, which is lead Series A investments. We've made four investments so far, and we're having a great time. So you both were at what are now very big firms very early on. I guess, Jordan, you were at, in some ways, two, and you started one. What were the key lessons learned as newer, younger investors, and maybe some mistakes made and course corrections that you now are employing at Pace? Or I'm also curious, like, what are some things that you maybe thought the job would be? Were like, wow, I actually think I need to do it this whole other way. Totally. Well, so I had no idea what the job was when I went to work at General Catalyst Partners. I like barely knew the difference between a venture capital firm and a hedge fund. I didn't know the difference between an application and an operating system. It was like I dropped into something I didn't really know a lot about. And then ultimately it became sort of my native medium. I think the most interesting things from General Catalyst, one was that there's no one size fits all to be a great venture capitalist. Like what I noticed sort of observing the partnership there is that all of the best people spiked really hard in one area. And then they built their entire practice around the place that they spiked. 
And so that was like very eye-opening for me in the sense that I didn't have to be everything to everyone. It was just really isolating what I was great at and leaning hard into that. I think the other interesting thing there, when I went to General Catalyst, I was hired by a guy who had come out of Summit Partners, who was building you know, a similar sort of associate level sourcing machine that he had practiced while at Summit. And so I thought the job was going to be that, Mm. like calling 100 companies a month and working the pipeline and all of this. And then I quickly saw the leverage that partners were applying to their time. And I said, that's much more efficient. Like, I'm not going to focus on the top of the funnel. I'm going to focus on the quality at the bottom of the funnel. And I just sort of went off script and kind of broke from the job that I was hired to do. But ultimately, you know, I do think for anybody who's pursuing this field, uh, at some point you have to sort of stand on your own. And so I just did that sort of early. And then Lear, the lessons, one, like it's incredibly important to have fun with the people that you're working with. Like I love Ben and Kenny. And, you know, as the team got bigger, everybody was, you know, Nicola worked there. (laughs) It it was a great group of people. This is my wife for folks that are listening. Yeah. (laughs) Worked with Jordan. Totally. But best hire we ever made. But, you know, like there is something to be said for walking into a room and smiling and being happy about the people that you're collaborating with. And so there it was very much like a familial energy, probably because Ken and Ben are obviously father and son. but. Um, that was sort of the plane that people existed on. Um, I think at pace, our energy is a little bit different, but it's the same level of intimacy. And that was something that was really important to me. I'm sure there are many other lessons, but I'll, I'll let Chris hit a few. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe my biggest takeaway, having basically like professionally grown up at Thrive, was learning how expensive it is to train an investor. You know, I think. To Jordan's point about there's no objective best, like one best, right? You know, you, you think about, okay, well, if you compare investors or venture capitalists like athletes, there are many different athletes that are really great at their at the sport that they play, but it's really hard to compare them across sports. If there's one sort of you know, takeaway I have is it takes just a long time to develop taste in investing. The way that you spend your entire life developing your own taste around music mm-hmm. or clothing or food similarly requires a level of discernment and repetition and you know just experiencing things, seeing things to, to understand what you don't like and then being able to lean into what you do like and what you are good at um, because you can't be the sort of objective best at everything at all times, it's impossible. And so learning that, really internalizing it, that was that was probably the biggest takeaway. Yeah, I mean, what's, what's interesting about, I imagine, Thrive in the very early days with you and Josh and maybe it was Will, did, uh-huh. is that right? Uh-huh. Did you guys have mentors outside the firm or you guys were just like learning on the job together being like, oh, wow, I made that mistake, or I think this is going to work. Like, how did you know you were getting better? Yeah. I mean, I can speak for myself. It was a pretty autodidactic experience. Like 
you learn from making mistakes. Yeah. And hopefully those mistakes were made at the least expensive cost possible that you will ever make them and you never make the same mistake twice. I imagine also to a certain extent, like each fund, there was a new set of learnings as you were investing at different stages. Yes, totally. Yeah. I think one of the more challenging things as we scaled as a firm is, as you can imagine, our competitors and our collaborators changed as we grew in fund size. So when we're a $10 million fund, you know, the kind of checks that we would write, the people would collaborate with, the people we compete against are different from 40, 40 is different from 150, 50 is different from 400. As we started taking board seats, as we started sort of leaving deals rather than tucking into deals or co-investing, it was very dynamic in terms of the relationships that we had with other firms and um, where it was a zero-sum game and where it was a non-zero-sum game was constantly shifting. Mm -hmm. Bring me back to the meeting where Chris mentions to you, Jordan, that he's thinking about leaving Thrive. I would love to be like a fly on the wall, understanding, you know, kind of like what the process was from that moment to deciding like, yeah, let's do pace. And I think this is broadly applicable to to many people starting firms. Like, I'm curious, even just that first conversation, Jordan, where you're like, let's start a firm or, you know, cool, let's chat more. Like, I'm, I bring me in on the process via which you guys ultimately started Pace. Jordan, was my memory correct? We were having lunch at Nick's. 100%. <laughs> wow, so I was the matchmaker. So I was, I was just going to say, this is going to, this is going to test my memory for sure. We were having lunch at Nick's, the, I believe, only vegan restaurant or vegetarian restaurant in New York City with a Michelin star that happened to be um, two blocks from the Box Group office, which is where I was camping out um, sort of prior to starting Pace. I think when Chris told me he was leaving, it wasn't like this like huge shock where it was like, okay, like now let's figure out um, what we might do together. We had spent so much time together prior to him leaving that there was already significant trust. There was already, you know, an understanding of what a potential future might look like, despite never having sort of actively had the conversation. And so I think my response was just like amazing, super exciting. Like, I'm sure you're going to need some time to like digest the experience you just had and process it, but I'm excited to spend time with you. And like, whether that ends up leading to us working together or not, doesn't matter. Like, I just think we need to increase our surface area because like, this is an interesting moment where we might actually get to work together. And we internalized that concept of like, no substitute for time spent pretty deeply. So like, this is someone who I had known for a decade who I had worked closely with. And still we spent almost a year not having a single LP conversation, just focused on alignment, just focused on like, you know, do we want to build the same thing? How do we practice calibrating on our communication? Are we able to enable each other in our respective practices? Tons and tons of time calibrating on people 
So, you know, we had a notion and we currently have the goal of getting to uh, four or five perfectly equal partners. So independent of how we process each other as sort of components, how do we think about the next incremental person that comes into the firm and what we look for in that person? And so there were some like very like structured exercises that we engaged in in order to try to unearth the substance behind those questions. Can you give an example of one? Oh boy. Uh, so we we published these after we closed the fund, but it was everything from what will you demand in a partner 100% of the time and what can you absolutely not tolerate, right? Just like trying to get to the things that might not organically come up in the unstructured time spent or like some of them are challenging. Like I remember early on, I asked Chris, I said, look, like I probably know the answer to this, but like, have you ever had any issues in the realm of like sexual harassment or workplace behavior or unethical behavior or, you know, these sorts of things, things that it would be awkward to bring up over a casual lunch, but we thought it was very important to shine light on all of those areas. And then there were other things like fund construction and like what you looked for in limited partners and what you wanted that relationship to be like. Uh, so it was, it was very diverse. And then we ended up using sort of that outline of structured discussion topics, not only with each other, but as we engaged other potential GPs, we would all speak to these questions. And it became kind of a living document where you know, other people would contribute ideas or thoughts or questions. And it was a, a really valuable tool for us. What do you think are the most important things that you guys were looking for on alignment? And what do you think are like the things that are maybe okay if you don't necessarily have the answer to? What's a non-starter in terms of alignment or a starter? What were the key things that you guys were trying to make sure you were on the same page with? Similar to like a personal partnership, one of the most important things about any partnership is the way that it is compatible over time. You could be perfect for each other in the moment and then not perfect for each other six months from now or a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now. And so really unpacking, oh, well, these are the time horizons. This is the sort of how I anticipate evolving as a person over this time horizon. And this is the time horizon over which we contemplate working together. Uh, you know, Jordan and I both health willing have 30 plus years of professional gas in the tank. Um, that is a very different consideration than, Hey, like we're going to be working together for the next year. Mm -hmm. You know, how, how do we, how do we make the next year the best year possible? I've been married for four years and with my wife for nine, I'm pretty sure she's seen a few iterations of Chris. Mm -hmm. um, and so in sort of having that long-term, long-range understanding of compatibility, it's really unpacking that, I think, as much as possible. You can talk as much as you want about the present, which I think is really important because being able to see the present super clearly is like, is, is such a large input into the future, but it's also really understanding the future. You know, in, 
in our set of questions, it's, you know, what are major life changes that you anticipate happening over the next decade, over the next two decades? Um, how will that impact how you think about prioritizing time? Yeah. Right? Life happens over the course of 30 years. And so how do you pull a lot of those considerations forward? Yep. I want to like tactically maybe talk about some economic stuff. I'm curious how you had maybe the financial conversations, specifically like how do you divide economics in the firm? Well, maybe let's start there because I, I, I think I know the answer, but I'm curious how you guys maybe had that conversation based on previous experiences at other firms. So we addressed that pretty early on, partly as a broader discussion around motivations. So very directly, like what role does money play in your motivations? Like how much do you care about this? Like, do you have a goal here? You know, what will make you happy? You know, both in terms of sort of compensation, but also long-term sort of economic impact over time. Um, I think the thing that we landed on pretty quickly uh, was the idea of not optimizing for short-term wealth capture. So, you know, because we measure success on a 30 plus year time frame, especially the moment that we're in now in pace, it's all about investing in the platform and letting those investments compound over time. So there were certain sort of fundamental and structural elements that were very important to us. Uh, one of them is equal partnership. And I'll let Chris in a second sort of unpack how we think about that, because I think he has kind of an eloquent take on it. But you know, both philosophically and also strategically, it was important to us that ownership in the firm was perfectly equal and that any future person that would come into the firm um, would sign the exact same documents that we did, would own the exact same percentage of the company that we did. Um, and we think there are real advantages to that. On the like day-to-day compensation side, I think the question is like, what can enable you not to think about this on a day-to-day basis? So like we would never want like financial pressure to be an input that takes you off of your game or anything like that. But whatever that line is, can we invest everything possible above that in the future of the firm? Chris, do you want to just hit equal partnership in a little more detail? Yeah. And just one question on equal partnership, because I know this is always like confusing for folks like (laughs) GP entities and there's carry and then there's management company and fees. So when you say equal partnership, it's like, you bring in someone new, they become an owner of the management company and the fund. Yes. Okay. Yeah. There are many different like flavors of equal partnership. There's like the Diet Coke of equal partnership. That is the like cane sugar, yeah. Coca-Cola. Yeah, that's hardcore. Equal partnership. That's hardcore. Which is maybe a good test for a partner. Like, are we going to give away literally an equal part of the entire firm? Yes. Which, which keeps the bar really, really, really high. Right. And for a decision that you're making, you know, every... I don't know, on average, two to four years at steady state. That's a super important bar to keep high. So I think equal partnership is really advantaged uh, in like two core buckets. There's the day-to-day operations and the ongoing like sort of investment consideration advantages of equal partnership. And then there's the sort of recruiting advantages of equal partnership. So on the day-to-day, one of the things that I think is so important to protect is the 
conviction building process and the ability for people to have divergent thought. Venture, by definition, is, you know, it's non-consensus thinking. You're laying out to catch a ball or you are pounding the table because you believe you see something that few few other people see. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of analysis about the impacts of regressing to the mean in investment decision making. I think one of the one of the biggest sort of challenges in celebrating divergence of thought and conviction building is requiring either consensus or like a, you know, uh, one person to sign off on, on uh, an investment. And so I think um, there's this great aspect of equal partnership where people feel a level of, people all feel the exact same level of ownership in making an incremental investment, but also adding value to the portfolio. Every person benefits equally from the performance of any company in the portfolio. Um, there's no, hey, like, I have my baseball card and I'm optimizing for my metrics over here and you have yours and we're really just a confederacy of investors that share a back office. Um, it's, it's a team. We win as a team, we lose as a team. And so I think there's, there's a lot of day-to-day benefits where you're just cutting away room that exists in really tight-knit organizations for doubt to emerge, for people to question each other's judgment, for people to question each other's motives. And that's such a tax on firms. When it comes to recruiting, you know, I think equal partnership is somewhat of an unfair advantage. Just because so few other firms do it. Yes. Yeah. So few other firms do it. And so few other firms do it in the sort of like cane sugar Mm-hmm. Coca-Cola version of equal partnership. Um, I think it's more common for larger institutions to adopt the sort of Diet Coke equal partnership of, okay, we're equal carrier. You're going to invest into an equal share of carryover or some number of funds. But that doesn't sort of check the box on every single person thinks about incremental investing, incremental investments, and also portfolio the exact same. Yeah, In, in the face of a very competitive talent landscape where you have GPs and ascendant GPs who are, I don't think there is a firm that can be successful without great GPs. I don't think there's any brand that is so ascendant or massive that it doesn't need great people in the organization to be making these non-consensus investments. And so in that competition, equal partnership, being able to tell someone, look, like you are, there's no one at this firm that is a a CEO. uh, uh, There's, you know, you have a completely equal seat at the table with every other person here and you deserve it and you earn it over time. And, you know, it's, it's something that I think is really rare in the industry. Yeah. I also think you're competing against the dynamic of just people starting their own firms. Like it's never been easier to start your own firm. And so how do you convince both culturally, but also financially someone to want to be a part of what will be yours, but also their own firm feels like their own firm Yeah, in theory, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, there are individual sports and there are team sports and the people that self-select into individual sports that don't want to be on a team, 
it's it's a little bit of a different philosophical approach. It's because it's not just about ownership. Yep. In fact, like people who want to own 100% of their firm and economics in perpetuity are definitionally incongruent with the concept of an equal partnership and diluting. You have your management fees every year. You have some to, you know, make sure that you guys are not, you know, concerned about day to day and rent and all that. But what does investing in the firm mean and, and, and how do you guys do that? Yeah, it's interesting because like we're a small team. There are five people at Pace right now um, and we'll always be a small team. Uh, so it's not as simple as like deploying capital into human resources. Right. That said, you know, we do think that everybody who works at this firm should feel overcompensated. And that's the approach that we've taken, you know, whether you're an associate or a director of finance or on the administrative side, uh, we want everybody to feel overcompensated. So that's an easy one. But it's things like, you know, like we invested in really nice space for the next seven years. And, you know, we want to create an environment that people are excited to come to every day. We want to create an environment where the next incremental GP wants to show up every day. And so, you know, investing in space and being very intentional about the design of that space and, you know, creating an environment where people can practice at a very high level is super important to us. You know, investing in, it's going to sound silly, but investing in collateral. And I, I think we sent you a pair of AirPods that were branded as Pace. And, <laughs> it's a very it, nice gift. you know, like we... It was an investment, yeah. but yeah. it was an investment that was saying, like, we value your friendship and we're grateful that you've helped to put us in business and embrace us as we've come into this world. And rather than putting that management fee in our pocket, I'd rather put it in yours, right? In a way that's thoughtful and intentional and hopefully reminds you how much we value you. So, you know, things like that are easy. What else, Chris? We have a weekly meeting where we brainstorm up like where what are other ways that we can invest in the brand building of pace. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's an example. So like this this is a little bit different, but when the pandemic hit, like we noticed like we had a big travel and entertainment budget, right? Like we would take people out to dinners all the time. We would be in California every other week. Um you know, that sort of thing. And we noticed that we weren't using it, you know, like everybody was locked down. And so we just had this line item in our budget that theoretically would be accruing like into our pockets at the end of the year. And instead of allowing that to happen, we said, okay, like we feel like Pace has a responsibility to, you know, participate in you know making things better and so every month we as an entire firm everybody at pace proposes not-for-profit organizations that are related to either frontline work initially or some of the uh, more social issues that have emerged over the last six months and we talk about it and we figure out where to donate our tne budget every month at the end of the year it could be to one organization it could be two but if you add up those dollars, it's a big number, but the benefit of that is 
one, I think we're doing our part. And two, it's really great culturally. Mm -hmm. Like everybody on our team and in our organization knows where our values are and feels some level of input as to how pace has an impact. And so that's an example. I love that. One last question on partnership. How do you structure escape valves for partners? Like what if you make a mistake, which I imagine might happen or, or you don't make a mistake, but something changes in that person's life and, you know, they, they, they need or want to go do something else as you consider adding partners, like structurally and maybe culturally, how do you approach that? So I think you have to start from the basis of you can't expect anyone to do anything that they're not incentivized to do. Um, just sort of veil of ignorance style. If you're designing a system without knowing who you are in it, you have to make sure that the system is sort of fair and everyone can sort of agree on that you know, a priori. To answer your question tactically, you have to make that person want to raise their hand proactively and say, yes, like this is not for me. The way that we contemplate that is we have an equal partnership structure, but there's also things that you can do in sort of funds beyond an individual's participation in terms of incentive that really incentivize that person to proactively raise their hand. So for example, let's say either it's a wrong person on the intake, or let's say there's somebody at the end of their career that doesn't quite have the gas in the tank to continue to go the distance and go hard in the pain 10 out of 10 times. You can say, okay, if it gets to the point where the rest of the firm agrees that you are not sort of carrying your weight, thank you, really appreciate it. Your economics in this fund will go as expected and we'll value you as an alumni but that's sort of the end of the relationship. But if this person proactively raises their hand, awesome. Like, let's accelerate your vesting through this fund. Let's allow you to spend time on finding the next GP and let's give you a piece of the next fund. How do you really put those things in place where it's a no-brainer to the person? They're, They're not trying to, because everyone is going to optimize on whatever time, horizon or consideration set that they've been given. And so, again, you can't expect people to do things that they're not incentivized to. Or put another way, don't be surprised when people do things that they are incentivized to do. Mm -hmm. I want to get to fundraising for Pace. You know, you spent a year together, which I think is really an interesting approach and idea before ever talking to an investor, kind of solidifying your own partnership and the strategy for the firm and what was the approach to fundraising when the, when the time did come a year in? And when did you maybe decide, okay, we're, we're ready to go do this? Yeah, I think we really benefited from having prior relationships in the LP community when we decided to go out and, and raise fund one. If there's maybe one takeaway from the process for me is you can't expect people to regress curves from a single data point, right? If you have a lot of data points over time, it makes it a lot easier for people to build conviction around the sort of trajectory 
of that data set. For LPs specifically. Yes, for LPs. I mean, it's, yeah. it's something that like, you know, as in, as GPs, we think about all the time, right? Like more information over more time equals better decision-making around a particular company. And so why should it be any different for LPs? And so relationships and history and, you know, consistency of doing what you say you're going to do, that all really, really, really matters. At least for us, it wasn't this sort of concept of hunting or salesmanship where, you know, there was this one shot that we had to, you know, work with this institution or this person. Um, and that was it. it. It's it's much more of a longitudinal approach of hopefully we are working with the same LPs for decades, right? Hopefully the GPs at Pace 50 years from now have as strong of relationships as the investment professionals at X institution as we do now. And so was, I think probably the biggest takeaway is it's really, really hard to get to a yes from a standing start. Yeah. In terms of timing, you know, we spent a lot of that year talking with other potential GPs and we actually saw a value to assembling a three-person construction as opposed to a two-person construction um, at onset. And the thinking behind that was if our goal is to get to five equal partners, the muscles that we'll develop as a firm with a group of three as opposed to a pair or a duo are much closer to the end state. And so we spent a lot of time on that and a few things emerged. One was, you know, no matter how much we liked somebody during that sort of initial construction phase, it was hard to catch them up to a 10-year friendship and working relationship in a finite yeah. amount of time. Yeah. So like we would push it hard getting to know these people deeper and deeper. But at the end of the day, there was always this idea that like there's some kind of timeline before we're going to have to go out to market. And we wanted to remove that pressure. Um, and then the other thing that we contemplated was we said, okay, like it's great that Chris and I were able to spend a year doing this together and not making any money and just sort of like, you know, setting the foundation. But the archetype of people who we were talking to weren't necessarily in that position. You know, because we measure success on a 30 plus year time frame, um, the people that we were talking to and that we continue to talk to tend to be a bit earlier in their career around the life stage where maybe they're starting to build families, et cetera. And I think we took for granted the idea that, you know, because we're so long-term oriented, people would forego uh, short-term cash compensation in the name of long-term economic, but that wasn't really a fair uh, premise. And so we said the best thing that we can do uh, for the future of the firm is to stand it up ourselves and we'll just be the first two customers. And then everybody else will have to work twice as hard to make sure that when new people come into the firm, they feel that same level of ownership and autonomy. And that, you know, we, we in, internalized a bit of headwind there by raising our first fund, um, but we thought the benefit was worth it. And then the other like interesting takeaway from that process is it became so clear through our fundraise that 90% of the input as to whether or not people wanted to work with us was based on things that we had done way before we ever started fundraising, right? It was like 
you know, didn't realize how important references are like on, yeah. uh, on book, off book, et cetera. But like at the end of the day, like, were you a good actor in this ecosystem for the last decade or not? And they figured that out pretty quickly. Um, so in some sense, yes, like we talked about the strategy, we talked about our partnership, we filled in some of the blanks, but I do think that a significant part of our success in sort of working with the LPs that we wanted to work with is because we did the right things all along mm -hmm. the way. Yeah. So you raised the first fund. I'm curious in the market since, I guess you've been up and running for a year. Is that right? All right. Over. Yep. What's been different around your execution? I guess kind of speak to the market today and what's maybe been different or surprising or maybe very encouraging about the market today compared to maybe what you had in a deck um, when you went and, you know, kind of told the story for the first fund, you know, I guess what's been going really well and what's been maybe some course corrections given the market. Well, I don't know if we could have uh, predicted as interesting <laughs> <laughs> of a first year in business yes. when I mean, the, the global the global pandemic wasn't in the deck uh, yes yeah it was it was definitely in the consideration set for sure yeah you know the market is so dynamic um it changes a lot one of the things that i love about early stage venture is that in a lot of ways it's relatively insulated from macro trends when times are good you know people start companies. And when times are bad, people start companies. And that's one of my favorite things about early stage venture. One of the more interesting things that has happened to the industry recently is I think a, a convergence of two dynamics. One is institutional pools of capital, uh, rates being low and institutional pools of capital searching for returns and increasingly moving into riskier asset classes of which venture capital is one. Uh, and you sort of combine that with, you know, closed end funds with management fees and deployment periods where look, if you, if you raise a fund, you are incentivized to deploy that capital over your investment period, regardless of macro conditions. You're just, you're purely incentivized to deploy that fund. You're incentivized to deploy that fund and then raise the next fund so you can start stacking your management fees um, or continue stacking your management fees or increase the stack of your management fees. And those two things combined lead to a really insane environment where people are sitting on piles of cash that they've been handed to by people who are incrementally more interested and willing to hand them money. And then they're incentivized to deploy it regardless of the prevailing conditions. And so what that means for us is we have to work really, really, really hard to find the sort of sweet spot opportunity where the kind of checks that we're interested in writing, the target ownership that we are aiming for, and the stage of the company converge. You know, if there's one thing that I've learned over like the last, it's called six, seven months of quarantine is if you're sourcing a deal on Twitter, be prepared to pay the highest price possible, right? Because it's just consensus. It's a consensus deal at that point. There's nothing non-consensus about it. And in an industry where the true reward and the true upside 
is given to non-consensus thinking. You know, what are the areas that you can continue to be non-consensus? I totally agree with you. I, I like if you looked on the surface at the deck that we had, I would say we've executed almost exactly as we anticipated. The current market dynamics have just made the practice of doing that less efficient than it will be at other times because we consistent, like we're doing the right work, we're putting in the right inputs, we're um, seeing the right things. But sometimes, like we love an asset and we don't love the complexion of the financing associated with it. And so you just have to be okay letting those go sometimes. And that is not necessarily easy in the moment, but you know, it just means like, we don't care if our investment, if we invest this fund in two years or three years or four years, it just might mean that we have a longer investment period for our initial fund. And that's totally okay with us. Yep. Yeah. So then how do you find that sweet spot of like $6 million series A, not totally consensus where I assume you can own like 20-ish percent. Does that mean investing earlier? Does that mean spending more time with maybe founders that are at sea that maybe will be your first call? Like, yeah, I guess my question at a very fundamental level is like, how do you win a series A investment in in this market? Yeah, I think it's, one of two strategies. You are either fishing in waters that are less crowded. And so naturally you're able to find the sort of complexion of deal and opportunity that you would be able to in a non-frenzied market. And that could be like off the radar geo or area, you know, industry or yes. um, maybe something that's out of favor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. All of those things. Right. And, you know, Again, I feel like this industry is really, really prone to herd mentality and you know convergence onto market leaders or the flavor of the month or the flavor of the week or the flavor of the day. And so as much as you can avoid that as possible, I think you're, you're going to end up seeing things that aren't as affected by that sort of frenzy. And the other way is being able to reach conviction faster. And that's either... You talk to that company and collected data points to allow you to get to a yes before other people, or you're coming to the table with a point of view that allows you to get to a yes before, you know, slap you in the face traction is there to subsidize the conviction building process of, you know, sort of paint by numbers, venture investors where, okay, look, you know, million in ARR or whatever it is, whatever the sort of benchmark things that would check the box for someone evaluating it without a strong opinion about the business mm-hmm. a priori. Mm-hmm. Have you guys had disagreements on investments to make so far? Totally. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Which I guess lives up to the, to the <laughs> goal of being non-consensus. Yeah. There's part of me that wants, there's part of me that like, you know, I don't think this is practical, but would be curious to see what it would be like is if in the history of pace to, to make an investment, you not, you not only needed a, a, a champion, but you needed a like detractor. You needed yeah. somebody to take the other side <laughs> of the bat and be like, I think this is a terrible investment. I don't think we should make it. And then you can maybe make a little side bet between the two. We're, we're non-consensus by 
designed for a reason. Like, I think my job as Chris's partner and anybody else's partner is to enable him to make the best decision possible. The only realm where we require consensus is if the challenge or aversion to the investment poses a risk to the firm that exceeds our cost basis. So, you know, if it's existential, like largely in the realm of like ethics, for example, that is a plane of challenge where the decision-making process moves into a consensus requirement. How about check size? Like if someone says, you know what, I just love this company. And instead of writing a $6 million check, I want to write a $15 million check, which out of a $150 million fund would be a big bet. Yeah, we've had that exact scenario uh, in the last few months. And that did not sort of trip the existential wire. I think it was like an incrementally deeper conversation around that Mm -hmm. specific investment because uh, obviously the stakes are high, but that feels within the realm of possible. Um, And it's really just about sort of conviction at that point. Any founder listening would be very, very, very fortunate to have you guys as partners and very excited about Pace. And thank you so much for doing this, for going on the record. Thank you, Nick. That was great. Thank you. This podcast was created by Notation. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams from day zero. Notation companies are always hiring. Check out jobs.notation.vc. You can also find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP.